This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... System Matters. The Profumo Affair. The Snow Voyageurs Cookbook. And the 1911 Ark of the Covenant Expedition. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists slopping through the wilderness. Battles of mud and blood. But at least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. That's right. Gloom of Thrones is here. We talked about this game in April during the Kickstarter. But now you can get your hands on this game of delightful regicide at your friendly local game store. I do love me some regicide. In Gloom of Thrones, players take control of a noble family, make their life horrible, and then kill them. At the end of the game, the most miserable player wins. It's a great way to practice up for holiday gatherings. Gloom of Thrones is available in friendly local game stores starting December 2nd. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash gloom of thrones or follow the link in the show notes because as the saying goes if you aim for the porcelain throne you best not miss the rattle of dice the thump of miniatures the crunch of doritos and the benevolent gaze of peter frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut and here in the gaming hut we're just going to put any old book on the table. Maybe a Dungeons and Dragons book. Maybe a 13th Age book. Maybe a Call of Cthulhu book. Maybe a book of recipes. No, that's a later hut. But we are going to put the book down and open it to find out what people mean when on the internet they say something as prima facie weird as <laughs> system doesn't matter. Yes. So, uh, like many perennial arguments, it is designed to be a perennial argument, whether system right. matters or not. And the thesis that uh, I'm about to uh, unfurl before you, my friends, is that uh, if people actually said what they were really talking about, if they uh, took a step back and turned the subtext into text, it would stop being a perennial argument because people are actually saying something quite different than what we're saying. But uh, since we both clearly, as game designers, uh, have... Uh, the opinion that the thing that we do matters, uh, and it's just... I mean, that uh, matters, matters. It's not like, you know, healing the sick or teaching kids to read or, you know, uh, robbing a bank, but it matters. Right, but it has an impact on your game experience. Exactly. Um, and so uh, I guess we should unpack the argument why, you know, that as far as we're concerned, I, I think it's safe to say that the fact that the game system you're using has an effect is... Like saying, there's nitrogen in the air. It's basic evidence of truth. And of course it does. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, if you want to learn that it does, uh, design a game with some rules that aren't so good in it, and then play test them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a simple process. Play yeah. any two games with the same uh, group of players, and you'll notice that system matters. Right. Um, if you need an advanced experiment in that, of course, the the example that I'm fond of citing is that the world of Glorantha, uh, created by Greg Stafford, now has three different rule sets attached to it. And what happens to your characters in RuneQuest will be very different than what happens to them if you play it in HeroQuest or in 13th Age. You'll lose more hands one way. They'll lose a lot of limbs in uh, in RuneQuest, and that uh, very specific brutal 
combat system will have a lot of impact on the choices they make. They'll decide <laughs> who to fight and who not to fight. Versus the, the, the notion age. that RuneQuest fights and 13th Age fights to pick perhaps the most obvious of the big bobbing clowns for us to shoot at <laughs> uh, are the same is a remarkable statement to make in the face of evidence. And, you know, I'm kind of proud of America's absurdist gamer community because they they keep it. They keep the hits coming. Right. So, what are people really saying when they argue that a uh, system doesn't matter? And uh, one of the first things they're saying is that, well, it doesn't matter as much as the GM and the group. And uh, to which uh, I would say, uh, brilliant deduction, Sherlock. <laughs> yes, of course, the, the GM and the group have more impact on, on the, the, whether the experience is fun or not than the rules do. Uh, but, uh, again, that's like saying that uh, your uh, bowling night you know, whether the lanes are straight and whether the balls are the proper regulation size has no impact on the quality of the experience. Yes, that is very important, but it's not uh, the only determining factor of whether you uh, do well. And the same group of people uh, might struggle with one uh, rule system that fights the way that they want to think, and they might shine under a uh, another rule system, and the experience uh, will be quite different. And as a game designer who has uh, created a number of different games, uh, you will have a different experience uh, whether you're playing Drama System or Gumshoe or, or Feng Shui. Those will all feel very, very different. Mm-hmm. And they all uh, they think on a deep level kind of the same way, but the expression of that is uh, is uh, very distinct and, and meant to be. And uh, your uh, the same group of players will have very different experiences with those uh, different rule sets. Yeah, you have to sort of tease out the question, which is when they say doesn't matter, they mean doesn't matter for some things. And so the question you ask is doesn't matter for what relative level of enjoyment. Yeah, it's probably, I mean, you get a good group, you get a good GM, you'll have about the same amount of fun, whether you're playing RuneQuest or 13th Age or For the Queen or whatever it is, you get a bad GM, they will, like a bad cook, they will ruin anything, no matter if they're cooking Italian or Chinese or whatever. Um, but that's, uh, you know, the, the spice palette does matter because it, it, at the very least, it's how expensive are the stuff you're throwing out. Um, similarly, in a, uh, a game system that privileges combat, you'll just spend more time having big fun in uh, champions uh, in combat than you will spend having big fun combat in, uh, like you say, hero system. So, or not hero, you know what I mean? Uh, that was a bad, that was a bad example. <laughs> not hero system, hero wars. Right. And your, uh, I yield the floor to you. Hero quest, as we now call hero it. Hero quest. And if you hadn't named it four different things, Robin, I would have yes, a much easier time like keeping my, it straight. My, uh, dear departed grandmother, uh, trying to pick which grandson to name. Um, yeah. and your example assumes equally well wrought, uh, game systems that are trying to do different things. Yeah. Uh, and there are, uh, of course, plenty of examples of uh, rules designs that uh, ain't that great. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, uh, a, a, a poor game design that fails to achieve its own goals, uh, you will not have as good a time with it as you uh, will with one that really sings. This, of course, is why uh, new additions are created is so that uh, they can refine things and make the experience better. And so uh, this gets us to the next uh, question is that often uh, the system doesn't matter argument is one of uh, resistance to uh, either adopting a new edition of the game that you already play or learning a new set of rules. So that I think one branch of what 
the system doesn't matter crowd are saying is that I don't want to learn a new rule set. I would rather have everything done in the set of rules that I like and am familiar with. And most notably, that would be uh, a D&D or a D&D offshoot or D20, because statistically speaking, that's yeah. the game that more people know. So there would be more people making well, that in, in fairness, you know, when you say when gamers are saying something, the majority of them are saying it about D&D because that's what the vast majority of gamers are. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's the D and D players are more stubborn. It's just that we have. Such, they are more numerous. Yeah, they, they, they were. We have such a bigger sample size. The exact same percentage of people, I'm sure, fold their arms and insist they're not learning another system uh, after having learned Metamorphosis Alpha. But there's only nine people who play that game, so we don't hear that one guy. Exactly so. And uh, another thing, though, that I'm uh, re- recently becoming more aware of is that there are lots of folks who say that system doesn't matter because, in fact, their GMs aren't really playing the games that they profess to play. <laughs> and this and is, if they're playing Metamorphosis Alpha, who can blame them? Yes, but they <laughs> may be playing a very crunchy, complex uh, rule set uh, and one whose crunchiness everyone or most people at the table are very highly emotionally attached to, but that the uh, group has, over a period of time, actually sanded away all the complexity and what actually happens. And so, um, in extreme cases, uh, you know, if anyone ever played uh, RuneQuest or HeroQuest with Greg Stafford, you noted that the rule system was Greg occasionally rolls a d20. Yeah. (laughs) And then he narrates something. Uh, And so, of course, that's even more stripped down than any of the Super Story uh, games. But putatively... This was a HeroQuest game or a RuneQuest game. And uh, I think a lot of people who are playing the more complicated versions of BRP or uh, Champions or GURPS are, in fact, playing their own uh, super stripped-down version of that. Uh, that may also be true of certain iterations of D&D that need that stripping down. Um, and you might, in fact, find that the same people who unconsciously are turning their complicated games into story games are the ones who resist having that become the overt message of a rule system. But if your rule system is simple to begin with, that's weird and uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, the uh, the practice of what you're doing at the table may be uh, closer to a story game than anyone wants to admit. And I think that that is another big component of the system doesn't matter crowd is that the system doesn't matter because you're ignoring most of it and still yeah. having a good time and not quite ever really coming to terms uh, with the significance of that. Uh, because it's certainly true that you can take a complicated system and strip out great chunks of the complexity, especially the complexity that provides simulation of things that everyone thinks they care about but actually mm-hmm. don't. Yes, you're right. And this is true of, of also of, of people who are playing a more story uh, spectrum end. Uh, I have, uh, I, I can't reveal my source, but I have heard, uh, someone who works for Money Cook Games and is wonderful tell me, uh, that, uh, <laughs> they've heard people say, Oh, we played Numenera, but we didn't use GM intrusions and I don't like Numenera. And it's like, there's only so much work that Mont- poor Monty can do for you people. Yes, there's the, there's the other phenomenon of, you know, overt rules rejection. And mm-hmm. and again, you can say that if you take something that the designer created to be intrinsic to the play experience and remove it and still have a good time, 
I suppose that means system doesn't matter in that one particular way. I think uh, what it probably means more is that, you know, the game experience is sufficiently robust that you can uh, take out big chunks of it and only use them when you need them. But that, right. of course, is not... Or that your playgroup is so comfortable as freeformers that you only need the barest of little bumpy guidelines to sort of remind your tables, Greg, when to roll that die 20. Right. Uh, maybe that you're getting in a lot of character interaction to avoid getting into a complicated Warhammer <laughs> right. fantasy yeah. roleplay fight. It, it's, right? it's why Phoenix Command is the, is the game that most uh, rewards diplomacy. Right. So if people, so the things that people could say to uh, remove uh, a, a perennially enjoyable argument that people wish to get into is, I like the game I'm playing and I don't want to learn a new one. They can say, actually, uh, you can still have fun while ignoring many of the subsystems. And you can say that I care more about the players and the GM than I do about the game designer. All of those uh, are perfectly valid viewpoints uh, that are inarguable and therefore uh, rack what would otherwise be a perfectly good argument that by definition people are setting out to have. And of course, there are much bigger areas of life where there are other arguments uh, that work exactly like that, that are about uh, an opportunity to uh, have a nice identity bash with someone. Uh, and if it was resolvable, uh, you would have to then pick another argument because you're not looking for a resolvable argument or an answer. You're looking for a fight. Yes. And that sounds very much like a summing up, Robin, uh, which implies that rather than you and I finding something to argue about, we should instead find our way to a commercial. By the great gold worm, is that an escalation die I hear? Why, yes, it's making us more powerful and awesome F-20 adventurers by the round. Well, I think we're going to need it because there's a whole lot of fantasy action coming our way as 13th Age again leaps into the bundle of holding. With a brand new epic deal on PDFs in the 13th Age Adventures Bundle. Includes such classics of innovative dungeon busting as... The Crown Commands. With Mapfolio. High Magic and Low Cunning. With Mapfolio. Fire and Faith. With Mapfolio. And more! Speaking of more, the basic 13th Age Bundle has also been revived, so newcomers can jump right into Pelgrane's love letter to classic fantasy. Featuring the core book. 13th Crew Ways. The Bestiary. A soundtrack. And the campaign to beat all campaigns, Eyes of the Stone Thief. Find it only in the bundle of holding. And only until Monday, December 30th. The retina scan and the background check that you underwent in order to listen to this segment tell you that you were once more standing in the top secret precincts of the Tradecraft Hut. This time around, I thought we would uh, look at a, a classic uh, spy or spy-inflected scandal that uh, we haven't covered before on the show, uh, in particular because it happens uh, in the early 60s and therefore is uh, fodder, and I think unlikely fodder, but we're here, we're up to the task for the fall of Delta Green. And the uh, scandal is the Profumo Affair, uh, which rocked British politics in 1961. And uh, in some ways, uh, this seems, by today's standards, uh, perhaps somewhat quaint. Yeah. Uh, but it was a big deal at the time. And, uh, and uh, Ken, you're going to tell us about it. I am going to tell you about it. 
1961, uh, the British government was under the uh, uh, Macmillan regime. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan was a conservative and he was a no-nonsense guy and he was going to put everything back the way it was after all the craziness of the 50s with all your all your uh, welfare states and your weird conservatives invading Suez for no reason. He was the steady hand at the tiller. He was going to keep it all good. He was going to be friends with America and enemies to the Soviets and just steer the British ship through the the choppy waters of the 1960s and uh, fight for empire when he had to and decolonize uh, with a smile and a, and a song when he had to just do everything right. That was the Harold Macmillan promise. That was the Harold Macmillan way. And Harold Macmillan's secretary of state for war, uh, John Profumo, was having an affair with a 19-year-old model. And uh, it was a lady model. It was a, a woman named Christine Keeler. And you would think that given the vast panoply of scandal available to any British government, and especially a conservative government, um, this would be something you would say, look, look at our good scandal. That, that, what a good scandal Harold McMillan has organized. But no, it was a giant deal, uh, because she looked very good, um, in the newspaper, really. Um, and so running pictures uh, much of Christine too good Keeler, to be on the arm of, uh, Don Perfumo, who's a classic, uh, rumpled, blamage looking bureaucrat. Right. Yes. Um, well, Perfumo looked like a, like a conservative politician, which is to say he looked like an unmade bed. Like what I already said. But, but, um, uh, but Christine Keeler was very, very attractive and, uh, back in the day, if you were a respectable newspaper, you were just discovering that other newspapers that were not respectable could run pictures of attractive ladies and sell newspapers and just for no reason. And now here's a solid news reason to run a picture of an attractive lady. And it is argued that the sexy picture of her in a chair that ran a million billion times in British press is the picture that brought down the Macmillan government because if she just hadn't had a really sexy picture that you could nonetheless run in a newspaper, the, the, the affair would have been starved of oxygen, but probably not because also amongst Christine Keeler's string of boyfriends was a Soviet naval attache named Yevgeny Ivanov. And as we all knew or would learn from John F. Kennedy's sexual proclivities. Um, once you start being Eskimo uh, boyfriends with, with, with a Soviet agent or a mob boss, then trouble ensues. And, uh, trouble did in fact ensue. Right. Um, now, <laughs> uh, we're doing this in the Tradecraft Hut. So in our actual non made up history, uh, there was an inquiry that, uh, determined that there was no security breach because of this, uh, connection between different Keeler boyfriends, uh, but there were counter accusations that that uh, report was rushed and was intended to reach that comforting and perhaps untrue conclusion. So what does the secret history of espionage tell us about whether there was, in fact, uh, a true spy angle on this uh, rather than the appearance or possibility of saying? Um, well, there is also the sort of true spy angle that Ivanov was in the GRU, so he was a spy. He wasn't just a simple Soviet naval attaché, just counting boats and, and uh, right. taking names. And perhaps there is no such thing as a simple Soviet naval attaché. <laughs> it, right? it is possible that all Soviet naval attachés are bad news. Uh, this is, you can't rule that out. Um, and he was a buddy of an osteopath named uh, Stephen Ward, uh, which is how Christine Keeler met Perfumo, is 
Profumo worked with Ward because Ward was, guess what, a back channel of the Soviet government because he was buddies with Ivanov. So both Ward and Ivanov were feeling the other one out, uh, probably on orders from their respective spy services, Ward for MI5, Ivanov for the GRU. And the question of who was getting ready to defect to whom or who was actually working for which government, I think kind of remains a question today because like most spy things, it uh, turns into a, you know, he said, she said uh, situation and no one leaves proof lying around. Ivanov got recalled to the Soviet Union in January 63, which generally implies that Ivanov did not uh, be working with the GRU as as thoroughly as he might have. And uh, he got sort of vanished after that. And then he uh, popped back up and uh, wrote his memoirs which were full of blaggarding of uh, Profumo, and uh, therefore he got himself sued by the Profumo family. So there's a lot of that back chat here and there. But it, to the extent anyone can tell, it looks like it was a situation where someone ordered Ward to dangle his coat, someone ordered Ivanov to dangle his coat. They exchanged information uh, in addition, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, among other times, and then the 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 dance ended as it so often does right now now there was a uh an effort to find uh someone to blame and punish and the uh the finger winded uh, uh pointing at Stephen Ward and he was charged uh, basically as a panderer with various uh, moral offenses mm-hmm. and uh he poisoned himself fatally uh during the trial uh so he was the the scapegoat uh, there's another character in the story Mandy Rice Davies who's a and also a young and beautiful glamorous friend of Christine Keeler who also uh, wound up in the whole uh, tabloid story and in a way I don't know if it's the uh, obviously the the Lindbergh story in the US is another example earlier example of sensationalist uh, news but this is sort of the big first English tabloid story or the one that really blows everything wide open. Yeah. And it's the one that you begin to see the tabloids playing at the edges of the old D notice, which is when the the secret services used to be able in Britain and can still to some very large extent go to the newspaper and say, don't publish anything about this story. It's, it will affect national security. And it's called a D notice when they do that. And by and large, because of the British version of the national security act, everyone has to obey. And the daily mirror among other newspapers said, well, we won't publish anything specifically about this, but we're going to talk an awful lot about Christine Keeler and uh, Perfumo because that's, uh, you know, police records. That's open. We we have all these things. And then when Ward was put on trial, they really blew that up. So they couldn't talk about the spy part of it, but they could sort of hint about it very, very broadly. Now, uh, if you're looking for pop culture versions of this, there's an 89 film, uh, which has uh, Ian McKellen as Perfumo and John Hurt as Ward. Uh, with Joanne Wally as uh, as Christine Keeler and has uh, Bridget Fonda as uh, Mandy Rice Davies. Uh, also, I wasn't aware uh, there's a, a 2013 musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber called Stephen <laughs> Ward, uh, which uh, got good reviews even. If it found something to rhyme with Perfumo, then Andrew Lloyd Webber deserves his knighthood. <laughs> yes. Uh, and if if I know Andrew Lloyd Webber, he would keep rhyming that for the length of the thing. So, oh, yeah. um, Fall of Delta Green is going to need a level of weirdness in order to uh, get us into this story. There's certainly a seedy underbelly of London, uh, just as the uh, the sexual rev- revolution is about to bubble up and uh, 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 throw uh, 
everything to the wind uh, in the UK and in London. Uh, so how do we get uh, some Cthulhu's uh, into our Perfumo scandal? Well, to begin with, um, Ivanov is a naval attache, and he's with the GRU. You can say Ivanov is with GRU SV-8, the Soviet version of Delta Green that looks into things, and that Ivanov is on the trail of a because there's no point if it's a scandal in Soviet Union, you can't go there and fight it. But he's on the trail of blacker and darker sexual practices within the British government and royal family. Uh, and that he, that is why he is in the Stephen Ward circle. And Stephen Ward, uh, you can either say that he's an innocent, uh, an innocent panderer of young women, or you can say that Stephen Ward is actually a cult figure who is using his uh, connection to Nirlathotep or Shubnigurath to spice up the orgies of the rich and powerful to create a uh, in for cult activity. And uh, for example, uh, even at the time, rumor uh, involved Prince Philip in the Profumo scandal and said that he was personal friends with uh, Christine Keeler or one of her personal friends. And so you, you have a spreading uh, a circle of who was with whom at which uh, uh, British house. And you can certainly assign Pisces to investigate that, or you as Delta Green can be trying to look at it from the outside and trying to get past Pisces to find out the real truth, because Pisces is all about fighting the mythos, but they're not all about, you know, murdering Prince Philip. That's above their pay grade, literally. And so you have to go in and uh, either work as a deniable asset of Pisces or work actually against Pisces to try and core out this attempt to spread some mythos taint into the very sanctity of Buckingham Palace itself. Uh, and that can be a an adventure, even as you're noticing that there's all these other horrible scandals uh, that are drifting around, but none of them are mythos scandals. And so you don't care about those. You're really just trying to uh, ease out the Agalanac cultists or whoever they are. Right. And you could also do uh, a scenario where the Profumo affair is happening in the background and it is uh, lending its sort of themes and motifs and the idea of, you know, the tabloids going wild and uh, make that something that's sort of commenting on the action rather than you're having to literally uh, make that the center of, of a story. And I think that kind of works uh, uh, better as, as these big 60s stories often do in Fall of Delta Green because that allows things to play out essentially as they did in the history we're familiar with and creates the idea of, you know, below the real history is the secret history that you know rather than oh, we're just going to create a, a, a crazy uh, alternate reality that goes off in another direction with, you know, well, and and then we boiled uh, Prince Phillips down to his essential salts. But everything yeah. was the same other than that. Right. Uh, well, now that we've uh, uh, boiled down a member of the royal family, and, and uh, I guess that, that, would, that is an object lesson, and yeah. therefore... No one else in that family ever did anything bad again. That's right. They they all learned from Prince Philip's mistakes. Yes. Uh, and uh, now that we've established that, uh, we'll be allowed uh, into the UK in a few days, and we can move on to our next segment.
The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep your Russian boyfriend and your British boyfriend strictly compartmentalized by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Graham Wills. Jack Gulick. Kelly Fisher. Lars. And Andrea Coletta. The clatter of pots and pans, the bubbling of uh, good things on the stove, and the complete absence of spice smell in the air welcome us once more to a particularly Canadian flavor of the Food Hut, in which Patreon backer Timothy Corum, having had his uh, appetite somehow increased by uh, a reading from the Snow Voyager cookbook a while back on the problem of chili sauce, uh, has now demanded more from the Snow Voyager cookbook. And Robin, uh, to, for people who did not hear that episode or who snapped it off in horror at the words <laughs> Canadian chili, why don't you give us the background of the Snow Voyager's cookbook? Because in my head, it's like every beautiful uh, civic organization in America, your Kiwanis clubs, your rod and gun societies, your uh, women's groups of various sorts, members of Congress used to do this with their staff, um, uh, and it's everyone would get together and they would submit their favorite recipe and it would be generally spiral bound and, and look like garbage. But someone's beloved aunt, uh, uh, went to school and got, and took an art class and by golly, her drawing's going to be on the cover. And that's how it looks. And it's a beautiful thing. And it has a bunch of generally mediocre recipes for chicken noodle soup or whatever in it. And sometimes casseroles. You're, you're absolutely right. Right down to the spiral binding. Boom. Uh, so the, the snow voyagers, which is, uh, Spelled S-N-O-W hyphen V-O-Y-A-G-E-U-R are a uh, still extant club that uh, uh, my wife Valerie's uh, uh, parents were uh, mainstays of for many years. And it's a group that uh, grooms the trails for snowmobiling. And they, Which is uh, good, good, solid club thing to do. Good, solid uh, civic it's, service. It's, it's, it's practically, a, a, I, I, I assume that in Canada, when you're a, a snow trail groomer, you're you're looked on as not, almost a mounty in terms of how valuable you are to society. Yes. Well, with within snowmobile community, there's no argument that uh, trail grooming doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Everybody knows no. trail grooming. They're matters. all like, yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, now they're the irresponsible snowmobilers who who abuse the trails, but that's that's of course a whole. Well, but question. they don't have a cookbook, do they? Right. They don't have a cookbook. They don't have an annual dance where there are. A raffle for prizes of uh, motor oil and tools. Uh, and in 1986, they did not produce this, uh, this cookbook. And so, uh, this is one of those sort of fun, uh, documents that, as you suggest, uh, every small community, uh, wherever you can have, uh, you'll find a version of this. Uh, but it's just full of, uh, if not 
in this case, uh, the sort of flavor that you eat, uh, <laughs> a social flavor. Exactly. And there's stuff about it that's funny. There's little points for affirmations. There's a couple of recipes that are, one might say, jokes. And yeah. I'm going to leave out the normal stuff because that's not fun to talk about. No, it's it's... The fact that they have a perfectly good recipe for braised moose is not going to be fun. I mean, it might be fun, but only if you have a moose and a very big pan. Well, actually, if there were braised moose in here, we'd be talking about it. But what we won't be talking about is uh, right. the beef with cashews. So, it, it starts with the candy section. And uh, of the four candy recipes, two of them are nuts and bolts. Now, do you know what nuts and bolts... This is also going to be an exercise in regionalism of finding out what Canadian staples are, are either unknown in the U.S. or known by another term. And, and, and before we go into this, yeah. I want everyone in the Snow Voyagers and I want Valerie to know that any time I make fun of anything in this book, I'm not making fun of snow voyaging, snowball, snowmobile trail clearing, Valerie... Or Valerie's people. I am making fun of the nation of Canada. All right. <laughs> so, with that said, right. no, Robin, I don't know what nuts and bolts are. Okay. You may know this as Chex Mix. Um, I do know this as Chex Mix. Right. So, there's a commercial savory snack called Nuts and Bolts, which is a, much like Chex Mix, but it has some different things in it. And so, it's sort of spicy cereals, and, and so there's shreddies and Cheerios and pretzels and yeah. And, and bits. only in Canada would it be described as candy, by the way. Let's start there. So there's two recipes to do that, a uh, homemade style, which differ on the uh, amount of Worcester sauce and, and butter to put in and garlic salt. Uh, and those are both in the candy section. And yes. I would have to say they just didn't have a, enough candies and they didn't want to have a separate snack section that was right. both two different competing nuts and bolts uh, recipes. <laughs> that would have That would have caused a throwdown of some sort. Yes. Uh, next, we come to the beverages section, uh, which includes the following recipe for punch. A 48-ounce can of apple juice, one bottle of red wine, one large bottle of ginger ale. I mean, I'm, that's not terrible. I would drink that. I mean, I might I might do something else, but, you know. It'll get the job done. It's, it's your basics. Yeah. You heat that up, that'll work. There's also... Um, <laughs> Uh, recipes to make your own Bailey's Irish cream, uh, which involves uh, Eagle brand milk and instant coffee. Uh, Eagle brand milk and, and uh, sweetened condensed milk are going to be staples of many of the recipes in this booklet, especially the, the cookies. And, and uh, probably some of the very best things will be made with uh, one of those uh, two ingredients. Yeah, that seems fine. I don't, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with it. No, I'm, I'm not here to just, not everything here is, is uh, supposed to be wrong. Right. We're painting a picture of, of, the, of the cooking mores of Barrie, Ontario. Right. And when we get to the muffins and breads uh, recipes, there is uh, pretty much nothing remarkable about all these lovely muffins and scones and, and so forth. Uh, and so we're going to skip over that. Then you get to the, the recipes with the fun folk names. Uh, where you ask yourself, why is it called that? So, for example, uh, the first one in Cakes and Frostings is a Goofy Cake. Yeah. Um, which is, just seems like All a right. basic uh, cake uh, made of uh, flour and soda and salt and white sugar and baking powder, a little bit of cocoa. Uh, there's some vinegar, some melted shortening, and some vanilla. So, what's goofy about this cake is something we would have to explore in detail. But it just sounds so much more evocative than just sort of 
you know, chocolate vanilla cake, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like monkey bread in America. No one knows why it's monkey bread. It just is. Yes. Occasionally, they'll slip in a, rim, uh, a ringer in here. Like, there's Bible cake, uh, which just uh, turns out to be, you know, one cup of Judges 525, two cups of Jeremiah 620. Oh, I don't know, right. Yeah. And so, you have to you look know, up. Well I, I think we did that in vacation Bible school. We would do Bible recipes. Um, yeah. So, as, as someone who grew up Texas adjacent, I, I have a, a question for you. Uh, my, my Texan brother-in-law mm-hmm. says that uh, from his part of the world, squares are not a thing. Uh, so squares are an absolute staple of any church lady dessert spread. And they're, uh, as you might suggest uh, uh, from the name, different dessert bars that are cut into squares. And here there's all sorts of things that I would happily eat where they put in front of me. Your peanut butter squares, your marshmallow social tea squares, your yeah. chocolate peanut butter squares. I mean, we had we definitely had bars in Oklahoma. It, it wasn't. I'll tell you what. I have seen a lot more squares, bars, and similar things as I, after I moved to Chicago than I did in Oklahoma. But I'm not going to say it was unknown in Oklahoma to have the occasional bar. And, and possibly known under the, under the word bar rather than square. Yeah. But I've seen a lot more of them, just like I've seen more, you know, hot dish uh, type items up, up in the Midwest than I did in Oklahoma. And it may just be that the uh, back in the day, before we had air conditioning... Uh, running the oven was not something you did on a whim <laughs> in Oklahoma. And right. so things, uh, the, the whole notion of we're going to have a big, uh, excuse to bake, uh, to make something that will make us warm, uh, when we eat it, because it's basically a bunch of sugar to be dissolved in our body. Maybe that was a less big thing in the Sun Belt. Now, did, did that apply to cookies and cakes as well? These- well, you have to make cookies, right? Right. And you have to make cakes, but, but bars are really just, suet i mean they're just sugar in a in a shape the i mean you can dress it up however you want but bars exist to have the minimum of crumb to get the maximum of goo into your mouth and again in in i think in uh in before air conditioning times and before uh, re- uh reliable always on air conditioning times uh you just didn't run your oven in the summer and so there was you know you'd make cookies but that was it and those would be on a schedule. Now, you were joking about braised moose earlier. And, of I course, was. one of the things people ask, what is Canadian food? And the answer is, well, it's just sort of like American or British food. There's nothing. There's very few things that are typically Canadian. And, and that is certainly reflected uh, in this uh, uh, book here. But there is a tart of syrup d'arable or maple syrup pie, uh, which is a relative of the pecan pie. But it's made with maple syrup and uh, walnuts. Uh, and again, something that I would uh, happily devour uh, were someone to place uh, one in front of me. I would happily devour it if I liked walnuts. It's not the maple syrup that makes me turn up my nose at it. It's the walnuts. And many people in America put walnuts in things because this is a free country and you can do things that are wrong. And and were you making a maple syrup pie, you could certainly uh, sub in the, the nut of your choice. The nut of my choice. The almond or some other fine nut that is still bitter enough to work with the maple syrup. There's an eggnog dessert. Uh, which, uh, when you look at it, is actually eggnog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know That's you don't want to be smart play. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to be too uh, uh, straightforward about uh, what that. Uh, you, what that you, might you be. say to your wife, "I'm just having some dessert," and she's like, "Oh, that's darling." Right uh, now, we come to the uh, the chapter uh, that is, I think, even more of its time than of its place. Uh, so, 1986 is uh, microwaves have existed for a while. And uh, and people think that you can use them 
for more than just reheating and melting butter and stuff. And so uh, you've got your hearty frittata casserole, and uh, you've got, quite astonishingly, uh, several pages devoted to microwave cooking of whole birds. What? That's what I said, Ken. So there's uh, a... All right, all right, all right, all right, Robin. I, this is yeah. me attempting to make the best of this. Yeah. Does this mean little, like, game birds like quail? Because I could see you could microwave a quail. I still would not do roast it. Roast goose. There's a microwaved roast goose recipe. Holy. And as far imagine as I know, how many geese you it. must have to be so angry at geese that you would do that to a goose that you had instead of roast it the way God and the goose intended. This was this was the this was the revelation for me looking at every page of this book was the uh, there's a duckling uh, a la range. Yeah. The, the roast goose uh, is your nine to ten pound domestic goose, eight dried prunes, eight dried apricots. An apple quartered, a cup of plum preserves if desired, and then you uh, uh, cook on roast. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. For eight, eight minutes per Robin, pound. there's no salt? There's no pepper? Oh, there, no, there's a teaspoon of salt. A teaspoon of salt for an eight-pound goose. Now we're beginning to get into the part where I'm making fun of Canada again. Thank <laughs> goodness. Yes, we, we, don't, we don't need pepper and uh, sriracha in Ontario. We have, we have sugar and fruit. Apricots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the, uh, the the four recipes on this page uh, in the microwave section. The first one is quick c- cooking oatmeal. Second one is roast goose. Third one is duckling a l'orange. Fourth one bacon. Bacon. Yeah, in the microwave. In the microwave, microwave bacon. That's of course where you would do your your bacon. Now, do they have a big page arguing with you and saying we don't mean that? That's not bacon. Stop calling it Canadian bacon. Or since it's amongst the Canadians, they can just admit that Canadian bacon is ridiculous ham. Well, we don't admit that Canadian bacon, as you know, it exists. Right, I know. Right, it's, that's, it's, as we've established many times on this show, and Canadian we'll keep bacon doing it as long a, as it gets a laugh is a fiction made up by American hucksters. Uh, doing what American hucksters do, selling crap to Americans. We we would never allow your so-called Canadian bacon under our plates. <laughs> no, you're, you're too too busy microwaving your goose. There's no room exactly. in the microwave That's, for it. You're busy doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, at the end of one page here, we've got preserved children, but it turns out just to be a joke. It's not a fun right. recipe. It's not actually a yeah. Wendigo recipe. That's a different Canadian club. That is absolutely so. And uh, let's speaking see. of Canadian club, um. Are, are, are there a lot of recipes in here that use uh, uh, Canadian whiskey and other uh, delicious Canadian blended spirits as flavor? Because in an American cookbook, maybe not of that era, but certainly in an American cookbook today, even one assembled by a faultless civic organization, you would find bourbon glazed this and and, and that. Is there, is there a, a section of recipes or is it a common leitmotif? The recipes with booze will just say white liquor or quarter cup of alcohol there's no special there's no uh, uh gourmet alcohol fetishism here at all right um what ha- what we do however is if there's something you can put nuts in we're going to try putting nuts in which right. brings us to okay now you're over the roast goose in the microwave no but you, um okay? i love you and i love your country robin but i will never get over that okay how about the nutty crab soup all right I'm there for one. I'm, I'm I'm there for both halves of that, but not altogether. Combine uh, half a pound crab, uh-huh. half a cup chopped cashews, all right. Half an onion chopped, one cup milk, one cup heavy cream, one can. And here's where we get to the other part: uh, using processed foods as ingredients. One can mushroom soup. As an American, I cannot make fun of that. I mean, I can make fun <laughs> of it as a human, 
But well, you, you, you can't make it a, a fun of it on nationalistic grounds. A not, a not, not on national grounds. Using canned cream of mushroom soup is, I think if you, if you banned that, Thanksgiving would end in this country, even today. Yes. Um, uh, canned cream of mushroom soup is, is core American cuisine. Yeah. So really, that's a, that's reaching across the border there. Uh, it, well, it's, it's, just, it's just all consistent, right? I'm still it's, not hearing anything that would go in that soup that would, make it taste like anything, especially after you've murdered that poor crab with all that garbage. Well, uh, oh, oh, I left out one thing. Uh, add uh, three uh, tablespoons of sherry. Sherry? Brackets, almond sherry is best. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Okay. Uh, and serve, I mean, serve with a dab of sour cream. Yeah, because you you wouldn't want that spice to bite you. Yeah. Well, we, what, we put <laughs> right. in spice. It's this, called, this, it's this recipe is even more frustrating because it's so close to a, a recipe that you would eat. Right? You can almost get to a tasty crab bisque from there. It's just like, you know, this is a, a game of telephone and then someone in the middle who hated themselves and life changed the recipe. I don't know. Uh, here, here's another one that uh, is probably spans uh, borders of uh, 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 regular uh, cooking. Uh, the carrot casserole, which is uh, carrots, a uh, bit of margarine, handful of potato chips, small onion, and one cup of Velveeta cheese. And the handful of potato chips is what makes it, people. Yes. Don't leave those Absolutely out. So. That's a carrot casserole. It's it's healthy. <laughs> Just the potato chips and Velveeta and carrots, you know, like you do. The pickles and preserves section, well, that sort of started it all. Uh, yeah. You'd be happy to know that under the chili sauce recipe, there's uh, one uh, for hot dog relish. I'm not going to be happy to know this, Robin. Which uh, is made from 18 green tomatoes. Eight large cucumbers, two red peppers, one bunch of celery, seven cups of white sugar, two tablespoons of mustard, six large onions, two green peppers, one tablespoon turmeric, a quarter cup salt, four cups of white vinegar, and three quarter cups all-purpose flour. And uh, <laughs> you basically uh, mush them all together, and you got hot dog relish. All right. First of all, I was counting the the, the, the seconds until someone finally said vinegar, but also flour? What is that flour doing in anywhere near? Is it basically you make a breading and coat the hot dog because there are no buns? This is madness on every level, Robin. You can't even begin to start with that. That's like a recipe for shagath food. <laughs> and there's also some uh, something you would still see today at any potluck, the layered salad. Yep. Uh, which I bet is also uh, omnipresent. Yes, world. it is. And finally, uh, we're going to go... Uh, the influence of global cooking is now going to be felt with the the final thing that I put a marker on, and that's your Chinese casserole. Uh-oh. So we got your two cans of mushroom soup. Yep. Uh, one can mushroom juice buttons <laughs> and add water to fill can. I'm not even... Uh, one can of Chinese noodles, which, of course, is nothing to do with Chinese cuisine at all. Right. Old-timey old as, as, as As of this writing, we have got a very, very mushroomy sauce for our uh, noodles uh we have half a cup of chopped onions uh one can of mushroom buttons two cans of tuna tuna yeah that's what goes in chinese casserole that's <laughs> what you think of when you think chinese food. yeah I, mean, uh, I, I think eight million pounds of processed mushroom and uh, two cans of tuna that's what i think uh, one cup of chopped celery and a quarter cup of blanched almonds wow i don't even know what to say i mean i think anything i say would be me just too mean it's just, again, I am not going to sit here and say there is no American civic organization that is not committed a similar atrocity in the name well, of... Well, I think we need, to, you need to find out what the Oklahoma equivalent 
of the snow voyagers. Of the snow voyagers. I will, I will look into that. I see if my mom has any insights. I, I bet I bet she's got to have a spiral bound. Uh, yeah. Uh, cookbook I may have a spiral bound cookbook somewhere downstairs myself. I will, I will dig around in that. Maybe we'll do a sequel. Um, let me end this, um, un, the, the, this period of, of unsavory, uh, side eye at, uh, your beloved nation with, an anecdote from my past at the home of our beloved friend, Mr. James Wallace of London, England. Uh, one of the prizes of his uh, small but exquisite book collection was a book that was written by, uh, I believe the person was a cook at one of the great houses. And he had discovered that the, the lower classes uh, didn't uh, know how to cook. And he thought, I will just avail them of my knowledge uh, as a gesture. A reach across the social divide. I'm a servant, but I'm a superior servant. And I'm going to teach these rabble how to cook. And so he made a cookbook that was meant to be accessible. And I forget what year this was. It was shockingly late, by the way. I think it was post-First World War. James will correct us later, maybe. But I, he pulls it down and he's telling me about it and telling me what a, a treasured book this is. And I said, James, I will give you a dollar if when we go through this book, the first verb of every recipe is not boil. And we got through, I think, two thirds of the book before we got to a recipe that did not begin with the words boil. So whatever else you've come, you, you've stepped across the Atlantic. You're beginning to shake off the hand of our, of our national mother's very bad cooking. So. Crab soup aside, good for you, Canada. Yeah, there's plenty of boiling <laughs> yeah. in uh, in Central Ontario cooking, but then you put, you know, Velveeta and can of mushroom soup right. and everything. So basically, this is this is the food that made uh, our generation become foodies. Yeah, in that it was plentiful, in that it had ample fat to to give us strength for the long cold winters of Canada or the long hot afternoons of Oklahoma. And it was just bad enough that we said, surely we could do better. <laughs> and indeed we could. And uh, once again, I've only teased Tony's beer soup. I, I look forward to, uh, to finding your, your local equivalent uh, to the Snow Voyager uh, cookbook. But uh, I think, uh, and again, I have to uh, emphasize that uh, I left out the normal ones yeah. in favor of the microwave an entire roast beef. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, I'll bet there's no microwaved goose in whatever my Oklahoma version is. I would. Well, apparently you're not supposed to put the oven on. So who knows? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, uh, before our uh, microwave uh, goose explodes, we'd better uh, find our, our way to another segment. Right. quick. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. 
It's time to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to genuflect at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and then head on in to the parlor where waits the consulting occultist. He's there in his smoking jacket, and in this case, he's ready to hear a question posed by beloved Patreon backers, Tim Maness and Gene Bauer. And the question is, uh, tell us about the 1911 Ark of the Covenant expedition with Montague Brownlow Parker, the fifth Earl of Morley, uh, and also the Finnish poet and spiritualist Walter Juvelius. Uh, and uh, there's all sorts of ways uh, to uh, get into the story of this expedition. So, uh, Ken, uh, put on your pith helmet and give us a pithy introduction. Yeah. All right. Let's begin with Walter Juvelius because he is the a first mover in the Aquinian sense of this nonsense. He works as a, sort of a Finnish government uh, functionary. He did his doctorate in biblical chronology, and at no point did anyone, you know, mark that down as a as a thing to watch. Um, he, in the course of his studies, he then became a, a, a librarian. He translated. Uh, uh, poems into Finnish and wrote poems in Finnish. Uh, he wrote the Karelian National Anthem, apparently. Uh, Karelia not being a nation, it never got used, but I'm sure they still sing it at Karelian high schools. Um, and he was, he apparently maintained his interest in the Bible. And in, uh, in 1906 is when he gets his, uh, degree in biblical chronology. And then, he begins the study of the book of Ezekiel, which is a prophetic book of great and mystifying import. It has a UFO in it, among other things. And he decided that the book of Ezekiel was so crazy that it had to be the cover text written over a coded message. And that if you could decipher the code in the book of Ezekiel... Yeah, they, would, they wouldn't put weird stuff in the Bible. It's got to be... Normal stuff merely coded as weird. No, stuff. no, the Bible, not if you're a Lutheran, the Bible is very straightforward and simple. And so he spent two years breaking the code in Ezekiel and to his own satisfaction discovered that the book of Ezekiel had been written by the priests as they were taken away to Babylonian exile and would no longer have access to Jerusalem where they had hidden the Ark of the Covenant during the Assyrian siege under the King Hezekiah. And that the secret that twigged him to this was that it mentions in the Bible that King Hezekiah dug a channel to the spring of Gihon so that uh, you could bring water up to the temple. And uh, Walter Juvelia said, that smacks of secret tunneling to me. And sure enough, once you look at a passage of a language you don't particularly uh, read uh, super well in the eye that you're going to find a code, you do. And you do that in English if you're looking for Bacon writing Shakespeare, and you do it apparently in Hebrew if you're looking at the book of Ezekiel. And so, so he figured out his uh, secret locations for the Ark of the Covenant and the other treasures of the temple and thought, well, I, as a simple Finnish surveyor and librarian am not going to get permission to dig under the Temple Mount, the holiest site in the Western world, uh, sacred to three religions. Cleverly, I will get a British guy to do it. <laughs> yes, he, he will have the air of false authority that will allow him to uh, start uh, digging just about anywhere. And he, yes. and he approaches the uh, beloved Montague Brownslow Parker, who at that time... He looked was, him up in an edition of officious-sounding Englishman uh, yearly. <laughs> right. 
who at that time was merely Lord Morley, his uh, brother, the fourth Earl of Morley, still being alive. But uh, let me tell you, if you saunter up with the proceeds of a, a whip round amongst your rich and influential friends to the Ottoman government and you say, I'm Lord Morley, then by gosh, you get results. Uh, you don't get to dig under Temple Mount. No one ever gets to dig under Temple Mount. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Do not go to Jerusalem and dig up Temple Mount. Yes. You will get in a lot of trouble. No matter how British you are, so- someone will rumble to you before you get the uh, shovel in the ground. And so um, uh, Juvelius tells him that uh, obviously you can't go selling the Ark of the Covenant, but it's going to be stored with a lot of other solid gold goodies. And um, uh, Juvelius then gets excavation permits for Jerusalem, not for the Temple Mount, from the Ottoman government. And he says, oh, half the proceeds will be yours. And uh, the source that I read this story in said that he carefully forbore to specify what yours meant when he was talking to the Ottoman government officials. Um, <laughs> but uh, however he handled it, they signed off. So he and uh, uh, Lord Morley show up in uh, Jerusalem and in August of 1909. And they get their permit to excavate at the Gihon Spring, which, as you remember, is the outflow of Hezekiah's secret tunnel. And so they begin to go through Gihon Spring. They have to dam Gihon Spring and move it out of the way, which takes a great uh, deal of time and money. And then they go into Hezekiah's tunnel and they run into their first problem, which is it's um, uh, only 18 centimeters high. And that argues that you probably didn't move an arc through it, but... <laughs> Nothing loath, they begin to expand. Well, have the dimensions of the Ark ever been fully right. laid out? It yeah. could be well, I mean, the, four inches yeah, tall. A cubit that might maybe have been, that's why you know, people are having an inch. trouble finding it. They've just misplaced it due to its unexpectedly tiny size. Right. Yeah, it's oh, I got the I got the Ark right Does here. Does no one know how to rationalize here? What are we talking right. about? So as they begin chiseling away at the uh, at at the at Hezekiah's tunnel, expanding it and clearing it and how much clearing involves pulling away the fallen rubble of centuries and how much involves digging your own tunnel. We may never know. And indeed at the time people would say, let's see, you got an engineer, you got a poet, you got a, a, a Lord Morley. Do you have an archeologist on the team? Got a Swedish engineer named Millen. I should mention him. And uh, they said, you know what? We don't. So they found a, a Dominican the player father. Who put dibs on that character was was a, w- unexpectedly called away. Right. Uh, well, they, they, he's the guy who's um, uh, he's the boyfriend of one of the players, and so he joins the the player group midway through. And he's um, uh, a Dominican father named Louis Henri Vincent, and he's a real archaeologist by goodness. And he brings with him a photographer because. <laughs> the the PC team is becoming unwieldy. Yes. Um, and they begin to document the tunnels and channels as they dig their way secretly under Temple Mount. And they're all keeping it on the DL. Uh, but uh, Father Vincent is, uh, Père Vincent is uh, documenting everything and taking pictures. And indeed, Vincent's excavations. you're committing a major archaeological crime, you've got to document it. Keep careful records. Well, for, Vincent, for in fairness, publishes his crime records. And they are still, since they're the only excavation under Temple Mount since Charles Warren's in the 1880s, uh, they are still used by archaeologists today because that's what we got. Um, we have a book by the engineer Millen who says that they went through labyrinths and found uh, poison gas traps and other Indiana Jones fun. Probably it was just methane, but who can say? And they would, apparently they would run into like, 
passages that went left and right. And uh, Juvelius would do his Ezekiel code thing and he'd say, we go right. And they would go right. And it would turn out that was the right choice. So everyone's getting more and more convinced that uh, Juvelius is onto something. Yeah, because without a, a Bible code, you wouldn't know to go- always go right in a maze. That's you need a, you need the Bible for right. that. They have to stop every now and again for for rainstorms, and then as they continue to draw the maps, they notice that we're not getting any closer to Temple Mount. We're just digging under Jerusalem, and so Parker Lord Morley uh, gets a new piece of information from a, an Irish spirit medium. And the Irish spirit medium, who sadly does not come on the scene, I think, I think Parker gets it back in England, but we can bring him on, uh, tells him uh, one uh, one hopes for a substantial part of the $125,000. Yes. In the movie version of this, they find the spirit medium in a, in a bar in Jerusalem right. and he's yes. fallen on hard times. And I've got to drink to, to keep the ghosts away. Right. Oh, <laughs> oh, the Ark of the Covenant, eh? Oh, perhaps the spirits can help. Um, and yeah. so the um, uh, Juvelius gets malaria and has to go back to Finland. Parker then presses ahead with just his mediumistic information. And then uh, in April 1911, everyone agrees that they're very, very close because they have now dug a tunnel right up under Temple Mount. And so uh, Lord Morley goes to the Muslim imam who is in charge of the Temple Mount. Uh, because what is it? It's like Easter and uh, Greek Orthodox Easter, Passover, and the uh, uh, birth of Moses festival, which is a big festival in Islam, Nabi Musa, are all on the same time. And so the, the Jerusalem's going to be hopping. Thousands of religious pilgrims, many ceremonies, everyone very distracted. The government will have other things yes. to do. As we know, bad things can happen when Jerusalem is hopping. So this is where we get into a proper heist. Uh, because Lord Morley goes to Sheikh Khalil, who's the guy in charge of the mosques on Temple Mount, and bribes him $25,000 to say, if you hear digging, Real money back then. don't go looking. So uh, uh, Lord Morley and his, and his men all dress as Arabs, and they begin digging through Solomon's stables and into the well beneath the foundation stone. They keep going. They're right about to get to the Ark. But thanks be to Allah, Sheikh Khalil is not the only Muslim in the temple that night. And uh, the, the, the mosque uh, has uh, other devout worshipers who are there and they hear the sound of digging and they go down and they see a bunch of very inexpertly, one assumes disguised Arabs uh, chopping away at the literally most sacred ground uh, North of Mecca to them. And so they, this is basically the, the archeological version of big deal on Madonna street. Very much, very much. And, and they set up a hue and cry and Parker drops his shovel and scampers for Jaffa on the coast. Um, <laughs> there is a giant riot in Jerusalem that is put down uh, a, a riot, by the way, that joins everyone in Jerusalem in ecumenical furor. <laughs> So it, it really, Lord Morley has brought Jerusalem together, and I think he should get more credit for that. Yes, exactly. You need a, an equally loathed external foe. This riot is sometimes indicated by historians of uh, the Palestinians as the one of the signal moments of Palestinian nation, uh, nation building, because it's where everyone in the area realizes they don't like anyone else in the area. And so you can believe that or not, but... It is a, a beautiful story. So Parker and uh, the rest of them run off to uh, Jaffa and they're arrested. And Parker says, go ahead and search. 
I don't have the crown and ring of King Solomon or the sword of Muhammad or the Ark of the Covenant. That's not me. Yeah. You're thinking of some other guys. This four inch miniature uh, Ark of the Covenant I have in my pocket that that couldn't that be that couldn't be it. That's the just a model Ark of that we built. Scale to the eighteen uh, inch uh, tunnel. So he basically gets uh, arrested and almost as though he were a rich and influential man gets let free on his own recognizance, at which point he goes to a steam yacht and sails away forever. Ah, impunity. Yes, it is, it is a useful impunity. thing to have on your character sheet. And you will be glad to know that um, uh, Juvelius wrote about his experiences in the form of a novel and claims in the novel that what they were actually doing was looking for a manuscript that would point to the tomb of Moses. And if only someone could just stump up $125,000 we could find the tomb of Moses. Yes. This won't even require us to uh, dig under the Temple Mount. Right. And um, a pair of Vincent uh, and Parker both published a joint uh, archaeological report of all the good work that we did in Jerusalem and were stopped by native superstition. And Millen, of course, wrote a, uh, a version of the story that makes him look good and says and hints Maybe something was found, but I can't say it. I'm a Swedish engineer and I'm under oath. And so, uh, Vincent, by the way, when people would ask him, you're a real archaeologist, what happened? And he said, I can't say, but if anyone else would like to hire me as their archaeologist, I offer you the same confidentiality I offered Lord Morley. What, what happens under the Temple Mount is under the under Temple, temple Mount. Mount. And Juvelius's, uh, Bible code and maps were supposedly left in a safe deposit box when they were found, they were nonsense maps. Um, and Millen likewise supposedly left behind the true story. His book was like, we can't tell you the true story. And then, uh, when they looked, they didn't find anything that Millen had left. So everyone involved, um, in the words of Nexus magazine, which is not where I normally go to for clear eyed skepticism, uh, in the words of Nexus magazine, a group of idiots who tried to recover the Ark. <laughs> and I think, in fairness, at least half of them were scam artists who tried to recover the Ark. Yes. Um, so normally we end these segments by saying, how do we turn this into a game? Uh, but we're uh, we're running long in this episode, and it's already a game. You just play this with skullduggery or fiasco. <laughs> you take the actual characters. You don't put any, uh, you know... Uh, crocodile uh, monsters or, you know, uh, you'd ruin it by having the methane gas trap actually be a methane gas trap. Yeah. You play it out for all of its uh, comedic uh, glory, delightful absurdity and, uh, uh, and satire. But if you're looking for the ring of Solomon, um, there's its provenance. It gets smuggled out in 1911 by Lord Morley in his pocket with the miniature arc. And yeah. so you can have the ring of Solomon pop up in your game and say that it was stolen from uh, under Jerusalem in 1911. And then maybe that's a goal that your player characters have to get back to. And yeah, it was smuggled time, under the pretext that we were idiots. Right. <laughs> or we were idiots, but somehow but we, we did have to get the ring of Solomon and, and didn't know what it was. Right. That'd be the other part. Because we're idiots. Right? Yes. Well, uh, you, uh, listener, of course, are not idiots because you know uh, that this podcast will be back. Uh, to uh, excavate under something else precious a mere week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep your crab soup free of nuts by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Jacob Ansari. Theron Bretz. Joshua Blue, Bill Durfee, and Jesse Lowe. Show your holiday superiority with the gift of Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest cozy design, good government and dry socks. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.